Welcome to Faith is Not Blind. I'm Sarah Devonier, and today I have with me Cherie Hall. Cherie, would you be willing to just introduce yourself a little bit, what some of your interests are, some of your passions? Sure. Um, I grew up here in Rexburg, Idaho. I'm the oldest of six children, and I am married with three children. I have a nine-year-old son, a six-year-old daughter, and a four-year-old daughter. They are kind of my life right now. But in a previous life, um, I'm a musician, <laughs> and I love the general humanities. I am obsessed with uh, the way that man goes about creating meaning in life. And tell us about your home growing up. You, you, I know that you had a home where the humanities were very important, and what was that environment like? So my father is a professional musician. There was a lot of music in my home. In fact, when I was young, he used to tell me, when kids at school ask you who your favorite band is, say, the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> and it took me a long time to learn who the Beatles were and Led Zeppelin. And my, my husband says I have this whole um, like black hole in my life of popular culture from how I grew up. But, it was really lovely. Um, always surrounded by lots of music and art. My parents were big proponents of travel and they supported me in wanting to go abroad and see different cultures. And uh, I was really lucky and blessed that way. And how did that culture of music and order and passion, how did that translate into your education about the gospel in your home? That's a good question. So I definitely know that my very earliest memories and thoughts about the gospel are all connected to music. Um, I remember being asked to sing Beautiful Savior in church as a primary child. I was four or five and had a, a moment with that. And um, music was just a way to worship God, a way to engage with the divine. But I was also blessed that um, my father and my mother both taught me that we used music in the worship of God, that music wasn't the thing to be worshiped itself. Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, as I came to know the spirit, a lot of it kind of started out with, with the emotions that I felt in response to music or in response to a beautiful painting. Or And would you say that spirit that you recognized while you it's it's such a sweet picture to imagine you singing beautiful savior <laughs> when you felt that would you call that the beginnings of a testimony or how would you describe that and connect that with your testimony i would say it felt good it was the creation of good yeah. in in the world and it felt sweet and i enjoyed there's something very physical obviously about singing it involves your whole body yeah. and you're participating in something that is bigger than the sum of the parts. And that definitely correlates to what I feel like the spirit does. When I can hear when you talk about something bigger than the sum of the parts, how analytical you are. <laughs> and so while it would be nice to just always have those feelings that you feel when you sing primary songs, that can't necessarily carry you through to adulthood. Of course. So yeah. as you got to be a teenager, how did your feelings about the, those feelings that you felt when you sang songs and your feelings about the Savior, how did those mature as you did? 
So that's really interesting because when I was a child, I had very little doubt, you know, such a childlike faith about the things that I was taught, about the spirit, about what is good and right. Um, but the older I got and as I became a teenager, sort of the through line in my, in my life is, um, it felt like that connection kind of was slowly going away and it was harder to connect into. It's hard to articulate, but um, I increasingly felt like I had to earn hmm. those feelings or, or that I had to, it was through my obedience that I would be able to feel those things. And then when they didn't come in the way I expected, I felt pretty abandoned. And the interesting thing is I never questioned God and his existence. I questioned myself. Hmm. So, and I think that's, those are fairly normal feelings as a teenager to feel like you have to, you have to earn your value. So what did you do to, to make it through that? Because the feelings of abandonment must have been a surprise. So when you were surprised by those feelings, how did, how did you get through that? That's, that's difficult, especially when it's completely unexpected because you hadn't ever had doubt. Well, I think that, I think that I grew up with an example of parents who were very, very obedient and were able and capable of being very obedient. And so I saw their capability and I knew that I was capable. And so I just kept pushing. And would you say you kept pushing through obedience or did you have to find other ways to well, get around like, that? It felt like through obedience for a long time. Yeah. Um, but eventually, I'm trying to think if it came to a head at any particular time. So for example, when you decided to serve a mission, was that mostly because of obedience or did you have an experience? No, it was mostly because of obedience and it felt like it was the next right step. Right. It sounded very interesting. I wanted in theory to serve the Lord. I don't think anybody can really explain what a mission is going to be like. And I think even after you have one, every person's mission is such a different, unique experience that it's well, very hard to prepare for. And I think it should be. Yeah. I, I don't think that we should take our mission experience out of some book and expect it to be exactly how But we... I know that for me, it was very much a choice. And I wanted confirmation that I was supposed to be there. And I had a couple missionary companions who just knew that they were supposed to be there. And they met specific members of the church mm -hmm. or they met... Um, investigators and had these conversion experiences that they could point to and say this is why I was supposed to be here and I never had that and it took me I knew cognitively okay I know this is a good thing but I, I don't have to be here and um, it took me a long time to reconcile that so do you how did you reconcile it it's an interesting word to use where did that come from so not during your mission but after yeah, so interestingly, kind of, I would say one of my first experiences really feeling um, that sense of abandonment or disappointment was when I received my patriarchal blessing. And just in short, it just wasn't what I expected it to be. And like, it was quite short. And the whole first page of it was doctrinal. It was like a treatise on- So it felt general. It felt general. It didn't feel very specific to me. And I was hoping for insight to myself and insight and direction into my life. And the big takeaway was 
whatever you'd like to do, you can do that. You want a server mission? Great, go. You want to get married? Great. You want to have kids? Great, do it if you want. If you want to be a musician? Great. You want to do something else? Where do you think the expectation that it would be different than that had come from? Because oh, it's, it's mostly a matter of this is expectation failure. For sure. And for me, a lot of it was I had friends who had received blessings and it had been like this incredible experience and it said a lot about their future spouse or what their career was going to be. Um, and I just had set myself up for disappointment yeah. in, com in the comparison. But interestingly enough, on my mission as I was trying to reconcile, like, do I even need to be here? It finally kind of came full circle because I realized my, my, my blessing essentially, as I read it, said, no, it's your choice. You get to choose if you want to go or not. And I wasn't, um, res I, I wasn't, what's the word? Like, it wasn't my, do my responsibility. Yeah. I, I wasn't called to it as just because, but I chose to go and create that goodness. And so anything I did, it was because I wanted to be there, but I didn't have to be there. And let's go back to when you talked about your feelings of maybe not feeling valued or you had to earn your position with the Lord. Did that, well, how did that help you to feel like you had made those choices where maybe other people, they were directed, but your goodness came from a choice. Uh, repeat the question. I don't think I followed the question. How did that make you feel more valuable and like, like you owned the choice? How did that help increase your value just in your standing with God? I remember distinctly a talk that I believe Elder Scott gave about receiving answers to prayer yeah. and how sometimes you get an answer and it's yes and sometimes you get an answer and it's no and then sometimes you get an answer that's essentially do whatever you want or it's no answer you you perceive it as no answer but the answer is yeah you have a brain go yeah. ahead and, and you know do the best you can and and I remember him saying that was sort of the ultimate answer that was the goal that we were uh, aiming for but I didn't as a teenager I didn't want that answer I wanted right. the direction right and um you, you can see how if you set up the expectation that if things are always clear and you always get what you want and, and somehow th that direction means that you're valuable, it almost sets you up to have disappointment. Oh, of course. So how did dealing with that help you to see that maybe you didn't need that? that there isn't just one way right. to get an answer to a prayer. And I like how you said Elder Scott is implying the ideal is that you can make your own choices. Well, and that you're essentially self-actualized. And that's yeah. what just took me a very long time to learn that, like, I've been taught all of these principles. I believe them. And God wants to let me free and let me self-actualize and go out and create good. Yeah. And I don't need my hand held the whole way. And I don't need... Um, specific instruction to do that. And I do like that as an encouraging narrative that it's that, well, and let me ask you, how do you teach your kids then <laughs> to see that as that is a wonderful, beautiful, good narrative to make your own choices and to, to have a partnership with God rather than having him dictate everything that's going to happen or even in your patriarchal blessing to have to be dictated 
how do you teach your kids to see that as a positive developmental narrative? My, my kids are still quite young, and so I feel like we haven't faced a lot of issues <laughs> where they're making a lot of choices on their own yet. Yeah. But, you know, so maybe how, how will you in the future when they're teenagers who wonder about well, their Well, but right now I'm trying to lay a foundation by acknowledging the validity of choices, yeah. of all choices, and talking about consequences of choices, all choices, obedient choices and non-obedient choices. When we talk about things like the word of wisdom, you know, my child sees somebody smoking on the street, and of course it's like, oh, you shouldn't smoke, that's bad for you. We talk about how it's a choice that that person made and that there are natural consequences to their body, but that they have choices and they get to choose who they want to be and that they're not bad people for making that choice. Yeah, and as you make choices now as an adult to stay in the church, to stay active in the church, what difficulties do you face with making that daily choice? Because you've owned that choice, but that doesn't make it easy. Of course. I think that for me, I still sometimes have that self-doubt. I have very, very many dear and beloved friends who have left, and I look at them, and I identify with them, and I love them, and I think, what's wrong with me? What am I not seeing? Which is funny, because it becomes a self-doubt thing. Right, just that echoes the self-doubt mm -hmm. you had with That's others' fun. patriarchal blessings, right, for others' like, answers about their missions. Right, exactly. But as I am trying to um, become more, and I know this word gets used a lot, but I have really owned it, authentic in what is driving me, um, choosing to go to church and to participate because I want to, because I create goodness, because the covenants that I make create a goodness in me. It's not just reactionary, but that I'm choosing to do this thing. I think that there is power in that. I think that's what faith is, is the choice. Sometimes in the midst of difficulties and doubt, And I've had to reconcile that enough times in my life that it's a familiar space. I get there and it's not surprising. I go, oh, I've been here before. Mm. And sometimes I know if I just hang on, I, I will get an answer or at least a glimpse at a better understanding. But it's actually quite a familiar space to hold that dissonance in my life. And so I don't, I don't need to run away from it. Well, and it sounds like, I mean, we started out talking about music, but you've, you've learned to create your own music rather than singing somebody else's song. Right. It's, it's your song of redeeming love. Right. And you know what it sounds like, and you're the composer, and that, that makes it so beautiful. I, I, but I think part of its beauty comes from the fact that maybe you don't see it as beautiful, that, that, that you see its complexities and you see that sometimes it's flawed. But I think that can add to its beauty and the beauty of the music, too. Well, and the, the, I, I do keep coming back to this. Um, the thing that really grounds me when I'm in that space of self-doubt is I feel a love for other people. I feel like I see God's love for others, and it's undeniable. Um, and when I see that, it is an act of faith for me to believe that he has it for me as well. Right. 
let me push that a little bit further. I think what you're saying is self-doubt is something you've become familiar with and you've learned how to deal with it. How do you make sure the self-doubt doesn't sort of bleed into a doubt about God? Because I think sometimes that it would be easy to have self-doubt turn into doubting God or doubting the church. How do you help yourself look, look to God with positive, more optimistic feelings, even when you're feeling that self-doubt? I seek after um, sources, so texts or music or that feed my soul, that resonate within me. And I sort of fall down those rabbit holes. And that always tends to lead me to serving other people, kind of getting out of my own head and stepping away from the doubt to serve someone else or to um, to research an, another concept that I'm interested in. And when I come back to it, it feels less, it feels lighter. Would you talk about some of those sources, some of those texts that have been helpful to you? Sure. Um, my paradigm completely shifted when I was introduced to the works of the Givens, Terrell and Fiona. Yeah. They really gave me the tools by which I could see doubt and faith coexisting. Yeah. And that one does not cancel out the other. And that there is a real power and a sacredness to a faith that is chosen, like I said, with alongside doubt, not in spite of doubt, but a knowing faith. Um, I also have learned a lot from the psychotherapist Jennifer Finlayson Fife. She teaches a lot about um, agency, learning to embrace your agency and not being afraid to use that agency and to make choices and learning to discern um, good and bad or learning to discern those consequences and then how that impacts your choices and it, it was just really a path of me learning to self-actualize and take ownership of the motivation of my behaviors yeah um also i find there's a, a book that's written by peter ends called the sin of certainty i may not be getting that right but this idea that god doesn't want our certainty he wants our trust and that also helped me to reframe my faith instead of being certain about yeah. things, to be trusting in God. And I think it's interesting what those texts have in common is they help sort of, they help you feel okay about maybe something you had been feeling all along that right. I, I have doubts, I have questions, is this okay? Am I validated? So they validated that. So what's an experience that you have as an adult where you felt like you were able to get through those doubts. Maybe using those texts has helped, but to, to have the doubt and then push through it to the other side. That's a good question. That's a hard question. It's a hard question. Sometimes I'm not sure I'm through the other side yet. That's a great answer. <laughs> Or at least but, to keep pushing. Yeah. Um, I, I think that I get glimpses 
right? Little glimpses that it it's going to work out. When I think glimpses can be enough. Again, it doesn't have to be this extreme. It can, it can be just as simple as singing, you know, a primary song and realizing that's an, that's enough of a glimpse, but somehow it means more as an adult. And and it's clear that you love your friends who are going through that. What would you say to other people when, when they have friends that they love going through that? What's the best way to support them so that you still value their choice? I just always have felt my whole life that people need to feel loved. They need to feel loved and that they will never return to a congregation or a, you know, a body where they have not felt loved. And for me, I just, I sit with them in that space and I listen and I offer my experience often as like, well, here's another way to think about it. Here's how I think about things. Here's how I have made peace with amb ambiguity in something. But I feel like for each of us, our path to salvation is so personalized that I don't dare pass judgment on where somebody is in the process. And I also think that saying that somebody's not on the path deprives our savior of his power mm -hmm. to get them home. And so it is also an act of my faith that our savior loves each of us and he'll do whatever it takes for each of us, but it's gonna look different. My path, the specifics of my plan of salvation are gonna look different than yours, but what's the same as our savior? I, I love that idea of sort of, yes, there is a plan of salvation with a capital P and S, but how about the microcosmic plan and learning how to value that? And learning, and that's where I felt like I had the greatest difficulty when my plan of salvation, when my plan of my life didn't mirror yeah. the ideal of what I had been taught. And that's when I struggled the most. And when I can come to see God in my life and notice that, oh, it's not quite the same as what I thought, then that it forced me the grace to, to have that same um, thought for everybody. Well, and it seems like as you've gained empathy for other people, it's helped you gain, gain empathy for myself, for yourself and, and appreciation for yourself yeah, and absolutely. your path. And that, so let, the last question I'll ask is, those choices, I mean, it just seems so clear hearing it from the outside <laughs> that they helped you so developmentally and they turned you into the person you are, this empathetic person. How do you appreciate your ability to choose and to help create your own plan now? Now that you've had more years of experience, how do you view it as something to be appreciated rather than to be feared or compared to other people for? It takes away the pressure to perform. Which is interesting since you're I'm a musician. You're a performer. Yeah, it's interesting <laughs> right. actually. It's all yeah. quite tied up in it. Um, I am learning how to give of myself with no expectation of anything back and how to 
just go about creating goodness and throwing it out in the world. And, and that means, you know, sharing my testimony of the Savior or, or sometimes just serve, serving somebody and taking them something, re react, uh, responding to promptings of the Spirit, all of those things. I do them with no expectation of reward, no expectation of anything back. I do them because that's who I want to be. Well, and I appreciate who you are and your example. That's it's a pretty good person to be. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It means a lot. Thank you.